Hi everyone, Corey here. You know, I love superheroes and one of my favorite things to do is to lead service couples and individuals through strengths coaching. Kind of like discovering you have superpowers, you would be amazed at what you've been created to do, you just may not know it yet. I've led hundreds if not thousands through their strengths journey and I've seen couples increase communication, reduce conflict, and my favorite is when I see a military or first responder spouse finding their identity again after years of revolving around the service lifestyle. Strengths coaching can be done online and is not counseling, so we can work together regardless of where you are today or are going tomorrow. As a certified Gallup Strengths Coach, I can help you see your worth again and even help you see your spouse with new eyes. Head on over to life-giver.org and go to Work With Corey to schedule your first session. I'm giving all of my listeners 15% off their first session with me just to try it out. Simply use the promo code FIRST at checkout. Thanks for listening, and thanks for spreading the word about the podcast. Welcome to Season 4 of the Life Giver Podcast, a place for honest conversation and hope that will breathe life into your service, family, and home. This is your host, Corey Weathers, and I'm honored to take this opportunity to invest in you. Welcome to the Life Giver Podcast. This is your host, Corey Weathers. I'm thrilled to introduce a great friend of mine. Her name is Alyssa, and I've known Alyssa for a long time, and I told you at the beginning of season four that my goal this year was to have even more honest conversations and be even more authentic. And I said, we were going to touch on some really tough topics this year. And I owe Alyssa a lot of thanks for this because she was one of the people that asked me to dive into um, some meaningful, much needed topics topics that really need to be covered in the service family space. And so today we are going to be talking about addiction. And as soon as she brought up this, among many other topics, I knew she was right. And I could not believe that I had not covered the topic of addiction um, to this point. And so Alyssa, I want to say thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, for being willing to share your story, for being a great friend, and for being a friend that holds me accountable in, in our life and um, that, that calls me to do tough things. And so welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thank you for having me. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Well, um, Alyssa, I have to say you brought up the topic that I had not covered addiction yet. And I just, I was stunned when you mentioned that because I, I used to work with addictions. I used to work with substance abuse issues um, for women out of prison. And I love the topic of addiction, mainly because after working with so many people who struggled with that, I realized, man, this is, this is a growth. When you have to work through an addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol or pornography or any, or sugar or food or anything else that we find ourselves addicted to, it is an immense amount of personal growth that you have to go through. And I know during my time of working with those women, I walked out of that experience going, everybody should go through the 12 steps. Like everybody should benefit from what um, recovery actually teaches us and how we should live our life a little bit better. And so you were so right when you brought up this topic. And I'm proud of you because today you're going to be sharing a little bit of your story. And we're going to talk about addiction as a whole in the service culture today. 
Um, but Alyssa is, is being so brave to talk about her own story and how addiction has impacted her marriage and, um, and how that plays out in the service culture. So um, what I'd love to do, Alyssa, is I'd love to, for you to just start off and introduce yourself a little bit um, and tell a little bit about your service story as far as um, how long you guys were in and a little bit of what it's been like for you to be a military spouse. How about we start there? Sure, absolutely. So um, I met my husband about 12 years ago. Um, he was already active duty when we met, and I was working in Manhattan, loving life. I graduated college already, and uh, we were set up by a mutual friend. And it was kind of a whirlwind from there. You know, um, I left my amazing job in the city. I moved to a base in Kentucky that I never saw, my, you know, saw myself at. And um, in the course of the last 10 years, we've lived in seven states. My children have changed schools a lot. We've had three children. Um, so we've, we've done the um, move and pack up a lot. And uh, we've done two deployments um, through those 11 or 12 years that my husband has served. And this past year was definitely the, the big tornado where um, last February he had a medical diagnosis that was you know, new to us. And within six months, the Army had medically retired us. And it was um, a huge shock to both you know, my husband and his, and his own personal desire to serve and our ability to know what our future held because we really had put in that we were going to do a full, you know, 20 years of service. So to have that cut short um, really um, put us through a loop uh, for the last couple months. But um, we, I loved our time in the military. I have um, some really fond memories as being a military spouse. And I don't, I, th I think even though we're retired now, some of my, my biggest connections are still other military spouses, um, because it's only been about six months, um, since we've been out. So it's been, it's been a wild ride <laughs> for sure. Well, and I love your story and I love the fact that you are the one that's coming to talk about addiction today because you cover so many, just even what you just said, covers so many different dynamics of so many people that are listening, everything from the military spouse that is currently active duty and what that's like to relocate and have kids and, and manage the home and, and all of that and live that active duty life, but also what it's been like for you guys to go through the transitioning out process, because that is a huge process. I get a lot of questions about that of, Hey, can we have more conversations about what it feels like to trans transition out of the military and, um, and how difficult it actually is to transition into the veteran space in the civilian culture. And, and I think we, I mean, there's even room for us to talk about, you know, yes, we, we put a lot of, focus, I think, on the veteran and what their experience is like to transition out. And we are going to talk about how that impacted your husband, but that it's also a huge process for the military spouse to transition into the veteran space because you have also let go of a lot of things as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've just in careers. I, um, every time we've moved, I did stay home a little bit when my children were very young, but I've consistently kept even a part-time job that was um, just to keep my resume going. So I never, I never really went a long time without ever working. I was always doing something and I was very good about finding, even if it was a very part-time position online um, versus, and I've done all the way up to a full-time position. And, and that's really the big thing for me was that my career always felt like it was secondary. Um, and, and it still continues to be, um, we weren't planning to move when we moved. I had to leave my full-time teaching position where we were at. And um, there's a lot of resentment about that because I wasn't really ready to, to give up 
the job that I had that I really enjoy. Um, and, but, it, but in the end I had, we were choosing our marriage, we were choosing each other. Um, and I'm glad that looking back, we were together because of all the turmoil, you know, that that transition had caused for us. So, so let's dive in a little bit and talk about um, your story and how addiction comes into that. We're going to be focusing a lot on alcohol today, um, and and we're doing that for several reasons. One, it's a it's a big part of Alyssa's story, um, but we're also talking about it because especially in the mil- in the service space, in the service community, it's very rare to have um, drug addiction or um, even prescription drug addiction simply because in the service culture, there's so many drug tests and, and things that keep those service members from um, at least, you know, not getting too far before they get caught with something like that. But alcohol is a whole other topic. It's widely accepted in the service culture. And um, because of that, and because I think it's a drug of choice that is acceptable and, and just part of the culture itself and part of the community, it's, it's just it's like another person invited to the party. And we're going to talk about that. That I think that's one of the reasons why we're going to focus on alcohol today, because uh, most know that they can't be using drugs, but these other more allowable um, addictions are running rampant throughout our culture. So we're going to be talking a little bit about that. So Alyssa, why don't you tell the story a little bit of kind of go back to where alcohol was first introduced into your relationship. How did you guys feel about it in your marriage at that point and in your relationship? What was this role or this relationship with alcohol? So when my husband and I met, we were in our mid twenties. Um, and I'm, I would say that we both were social drinkers. We, I'm, I'm really fun when I drink. My husband's a really good guy. Normally when we back in our early twenties, we were, we have fun with our friends. We would go out to bars, we would host parties at our home. And we definitely didn't, it never really crossed the line where it wasn't socially acceptable. Were there nights that might got out of hand? Sure. But it was never um, a, a draw of concern. Or there were no red flags. Probably for the first two to three years of our marriage, it never felt like it was, you know, alcohol abuse or we were doing anything that wasn't, that was above, you know, anything. So it wasn't until he got back from his first deployment and we had a really rough um, Afghanistan deployment. And he came back from that um, and really was using alcohol as a coping mechanism, as a way to escape um, his reality. He also came home to a new baby. I had a baby while he was gone. And so that was a whole new world for us um, as a couple. Um, but again, all of our friends were drinking with us. It did, again, was this a socially appropriate thing? Um, all of our unit activities involved drinking. It wasn't um, so while there were some nights that I was like, oh, I wish we hadn't taken it that far. It, it never, it, even then it didn't have any red flags. Um, when he got back from his second deployment, now he came home to a third baby. I had a third, our third baby on a deployment as well. And so he had three kids under four and um, was then coming off of a year of sobriety because when you're deployed, there is no alcohol option. And that's when it really started to go downhill and it started to feel like he couldn't figure out how to stop it. So there were a couple, go ahead. Pause you for just a second. Let's go back to that first deployment. So I think there might be some people listening that are going, what was that? Like, what was it that you saw? And um, because I I think there's going to be a lot of people listening that are going to be listening for behaviors of things that they might be seeing in their own home and in their own marriages. So what was it that you saw in him that he was doing specifically that kind of put that red flag up that said, Hey, this has gone from social drinking to now a means of coping. So there was a time where, um, and I'm sure that you can relate to this with Matt, that um, I wanted to hear some of the stories from deployment, but he wasn't ready to tell them. 
and alcohol was usually his way that he could kind of ease into telling whatever story he may be wanting to express, but he wasn't capable of doing. And some of the time I wasn't even privy to the conversation. It would be like in the backyard of a friend's house and the boys would all be in one circle drinking and telling their stories and the women would all be on another. And that's where we would kind of overhear things and be like, I didn't, I've never, I didn't know that happened. Did you know that happened? So it was very much like the camaraderie of his peers and alcohol was almost like their way of relief, their truth serum of being like, wow, remember that time where this happened and they, where they would not sober tell that story because it was too emotionally raw for them. Um, and, and he would get at some of the nights where it's got, when it went out of hand, he would get very vulnerable and raw where he could tell he couldn't cope with those feelings that I was bringing up and, um, me trying to understand where he was coming from was really difficult because I either didn't know the full story or couldn't understand that time that he had because it was so separate from the time that I had. Um, and we really were on separate pages, you know, having a baby on a deployment is not always the best situation, but it still couldn't be comparable to some of the things that he had witnessed. So I wanted this like, but look how, how I, you know, was resilient and did all these things and, you know, came out of this trying time for me. And he couldn't really understand because he was going through, well, I had to go through, you know, A, B and C too, which were completely separate, you know, events, but we both couldn't see each other's events. So what did you think about that back then when you saw him drinking a little bit more what were, did you feel like it made sense at the time or you were okay with it? Cause I'm sure in hindsight now you see things that you didn't see then. So what were you thinking then when you saw those changes? I think then I just felt like he needed to, uh, you know, as our, we were young, it was our first deployments. We hadn't done that before. And since our friends were all kind of doing similar things, we we're just like, that's just the normal way to process, you know, um, that deployment. I know that was where we had met. Like that deployment was rough for a lot of people and everyone came home with a different, problem and it might not have been a visible injury but everyone came back with different as your book says a different sacred space they came back with different things that were super sacred to them a time that you know was very you know their moment where they're like no that really defined that deployment for me that defined you know that moment where I knew that my life would be different because of that moment so I think that's where I look back and wonder should I have you know stopped him then and maybe pushed him to go to counseling then or maybe pushed him to you know seek you know a peer therapy group or things like that. We really weren't doing that um, because we had young babies and we were in the middle of trying to PCS to the next place and all that good stuff. We, I don't think we actually took the time to figure out if it was, like, really was a serious problem because he didn't have the time career-wise to figure that out. When those of you who have read the book, Sacred Spaces, um, Alyssa is referencing our first deployment um, that's mentioned in the book. Alyssa was part of our squadron. Their family was part of our squadron. So this was the same deployment that is, is talked about throughout the book. And so it really was a rough, or was a rough deployment for everybody. Every platoon was going through something. Um, and in the spouses, we all grew very close to each other. And, um, and that's one of the reasons why we all still are very supportive of each other to this day. And it's, it's considered family because you've gone through these tough things together. And so, and I, and I know that the guys had that experience too. So, um, so I can agree with you. And I think there's a lot of people that would agree with you too, to say, you know, especially in the military culture. And I would say probably in the first responder culture, um, it's just this thing you do, right? Like, like you said, you just kind of went along with it because it was the first deployment. It was the first reintegration. You get together with other people in the same culture or the same people that have the same stories and everybody's drinking. 
um, I remember everybody getting together in somebody's backyard and that's just what we did, right? Like everybody drank a little bit and like just kind of calm their nerves down a little bit and relax and, and we're happy to be back together again. Right. And so that was kind of part of the culture. Um, so you said you kind of went, you went into the second deployment, had a third baby, which you apparently didn't learn the first time. So the third baby comes along and your husband comes home and that's where you said things started to to really progress at that point. So what were some of the red flags that you saw after that second deployment that really um, started to concern you at that point? Well, after the second deployment, he was um, using it as a coping mechanism, but almost to a fault. My husband is, has never went to work drunk. He has never gotten in trouble for drinking within the military. He, was not, he wasn't that soldier. It was purely his secret at home that he kept in the, like a box at home. And it was the weekends that were like, he'd wake up on a Saturday morning and instead of having a cup of coffee, like a person who wasn't suffering from alcohol abuse, um, and he would just open a Diet Coke and pour some Jack in it. And, and I'd look at him like, are you really having a Jack and Diet at eight in the morning? You know, like that's, and that to me, I know is not normal. That isn't normal behavior. Um, and I would, I turned into our relationship that I became the driver because I never knew if he was going to, you know, be drinking before we went out somewhere so that he couldn't be the driver to go to whatever we were doing for that weekend. And it, and it also made me worry about going to social events. Um, I like to host parties and I also like to go to them. I had a really great group of friends um, where we were at and I almost was worried, was he going to overdrink and, you know, become not sloppy in a sense, but become not himself. Um, there's a point where, you know, and I think this happens with a lot of people who drink, like there's a point where it's fun and then there's a point where it's not fun anymore. And we were getting to the, it's not more, it's not fun anymore point. And we also had three young kids. And I remember thinking like, I don't need another kid to watch and to babysit and to make sure, you know, um, that they're not falling out of the car because they can't walk in themselves. Um, and I didn't need that stressor. And we fought a lot about it. And before, and in turning of that, that's when he started becoming secretive because he knew that it was making me upset. So he would do it when, or try, try to hide it from me. My husband's a terrible liar, but when he's drunk, he thinks he's a good liar. So it um, became him thinking that he was smart and could like hide it in the garage or hide it in this. And I would never know, but I knew and would be calling him out and he'd be like, no, no, I'm, I'm not doing that. And that's when I knew there was a problem because when you're hiding what you're doing and when you're hiding um, how much you're drinking, that's when I know that, I mean, just in my own schooling, I'm a bachelor's in psychology. Um, I know that there's, there's a time where it goes from, a, you know, a fun activity where you're using alcohol as, you know, a social thing to where you're verging on alcohol abuse or maybe even higher. And that's where I knew that we were coming into some darker waters, but because it was so ingrained in our friends group, um, everything we went to, even when people came to our house, like we would have wine and beer and, you know, other things. And that was just ingrained in our social time that it wasn't until we were leaving Colorado and going to our next place that we really could say, let's just do something different because this is not working for us. It's not working for me. It's not working for you. I don't want our kids to grow up in a time where they can't, I can't count on their father to be present. Um, and that really, put a, a, a real good strain on our, on our relationship. So can I ask, before we go to what happened after Colorado, do you think that 
because he was able to go through that second deployment where you said he had to be sober? Mm-hmm. Uh, or may, do you think it's possible that there's a lot of especially service members out there that don't think that they have a problem because they have these forced times of, of being sober, whether it's a deployment or a training or the work week, right? Mm-hmm. Where they go, well, I was sober all week, so I can drink on the weekend. Or I was sober for the entire deployment, so I don't have a problem. I can stop drinking if I want to. Mm-hmm. So talk with me for just a minute about whether what his perspective was on that or, or maybe what you think or have heard since of what other people within the community and whether or not you've heard anything else like that. Yeah, I, I definitely, that was definitely an argument that he would have with me. Well, I didn't drink for the whole year. So not that like you have to make up for it, but I feel like some of the guys came home, like I got to make up for all those months. I didn't have a beer and I got to have four tonight or 10 tonight. Um, it definitely was something that was, was just talked about, I guess, freely. And at least in our friend group of like, you got to make up for lost time. And um, it really, for me, I think that the, the emotionality that goes along with drinking is I think where we're, where we hit a lot of that fog of, you know, is this a social event or is this you trying to escape your present life and present being? And I think that's Meaning where that you guys were confused on which one was happening. Yeah. Cause I would be having a social time and I would, cause I'm not, I don't have a problem with addiction. I, I can drink alcohol and know when my, my limit is. So I'd be having a great time with my friends, but I would look over and my husband's passed out on the couch because he didn't know his limit and he was doing an escape where I was having a fun social time. And that's also just a personality difference in my husband and I. Um, But that was a huge red flag to me too, because we were having different experiences at the same place Mm. and I'm using the same substance even. Um, So that was when, you know, when we, when we did that PCS, that's when I decided to not have alcohol at all. So I gave up drinking, you know, five years ago and has continued to not drink um, out of respect for my husband and hopefully motivate him and to have the support to not drink as well. Was that a mutual thing when you left Colorado that you guys decided at that point, hey, let's try this where we don't drink at all? Or did you make the decision where you said, I'm going to, like inside yourself, did you decide, I'm going to do this with the hope of motivating him? So knowing what I knew about addiction and alcoholism from my schooling, I never once told my husband to stop drinking. I never once did because I knew that he had to make that decision on his own. So I, during when we were having our disagreements about how much alcohol he was having, I never was like, you need to just stop. You need to, you know, because that wouldn't actually be helpful for him. So I usually would say things like, I don't need to drink. I'm not going to drink. I hope that you don't, but I'm not going to tell you not to, but I will tell you, please don't do it in front of our children. You're not going to be in charge of them while you're drinking. And I'm not going to let you drive us places. I would, I put like criteria around his, around his drinking so that he realized that there were real consequences, you know, not that, you know, he was going to be punished for drinking. And I tell him even now that in his sobriety, like if he wants to go and have a drink, I'll be the first one to drive him to the bar. But there are consequences if you do choose that because there, there is a real life and three other lives that rely on you to be a functioning adult. And so that was really, when we did that PCS, it was really difficult because he wanted to stop, but he didn't have the means or the support other than me to do that. Um, and it really took a lot of grit on his part um, when we got to, when we were traveling, and this is a, you know, a fault in the TRICARE system and in the military system as whole, there's a lot of programs out there, but when you're in the middle of a PCS, you don't really belong to anybody. Like you don't belong to your old base. You haven't signed in at your new place. 
So if you want help from a medical professional, your only choice is the ER. There is nowhere else that you can go if you're in the middle of a cross-country to essentially move. Like, there was no way to get seek help. So even if he wanted to go talk to a therapist or go seek out, um, you know, some kind of treatment, there was nowhere to call to say, hey, I'm in the middle of a PCS. And actually, I think he did try to call someone, one of the advice lines, and like, well, since you're in, your PC, in the middle of PCS, we can't really do anything until you sign in at your next location. And it was really difficult for us. Did you guys actually have an issue that came up during that PCS? Yeah, well, because he was trying to stop, and was, and that was when he figured out that he couldn't stop on his own, that he needed some support that was bigger than just cold turkey and drink and stopping. Um, so when, by the time we reached our – and, and th- that was also where there was a lot of – a lot of behaviors that really affected our marriage because he was still saying that he was not drinking and then hiding that he was, or one of the places we stopped along the route, he's like, I'm going to go to an AA meeting. You stay at the hotel with the kids. And instead of going to the AA meeting, he went to the bar and mm-hmm. I'm not stupid. I know my husband when he's drinking. And there was a big time. It was a, a big um, moment on that PCS. We went to Disneyland with the, with the kids on the way going to where we were heading. And, um, there were two times on that trip that one, he, um, we were staying at friends' houses and he, and they knew that he was trying not to drink and they noticed that their liquor and their liquor cabinet was going down and it wasn't them. So I had said like, Hey, so-and-so said that you might be drinking some of their liquor. They're not mad. They just know that you're trying not to. Do you want us to put it away? And he denied it, denied it, denied it. And then while we were in Disney world or Disneyland, um, he went to put like a stroller in the car and it took him like an hour and a half which shouldn't take that long to get to the parking lot and back. And by the time he got back to me and the kids, he was wasted. And I knew it and I was angry and it was my birthday. And I remember feeling like you just ruined this amazing day because you wanted to have liquor. Like that is like, and it just, it really defeated me because this is probably like day four or five on this big move. And um, I knew he was trying, but like he physically wasn't able to not. Um, the addiction was, was definitely speaking for him and not making good choices. And uh, it took a number of weeks um, when we actually got to where we were headed for him to, um, she tried a couple different methods and we called to different places, but there's that stigma. And I, I know that people are going to tell me, oh, there's not really a stigma in the military or there's, there's services he could have gone to ASAP or he could have done this, but there is a understanding that if you go and seek help from certain places, you, it will affect your career in the long run. And for whatever, you could tell my husband up and down that that's not the case, but in his head, that is the case. So we were trying to seek out channels that were not through the military because he didn't want it to affect, you know, his clearances and things like that. And, um, but still have the help he needed. And he tried some AA meetings. AA wasn't for him supposedly, And he, at that time, you know, four or five years ago, went cold turkey, pure grit, stopped drinking, and didn't drink for, you know, a number of years, um, for about four and a half years, and he was fine. Our marriage still was rocky because of all those times where I felt betrayed and lied to, and we had to really work through that. Um, And those two years that we were at that base um, really gave us the opportunity because he hadn't deployed. He was in a schoolhouse situation, and it gave us time to really work on us again. Um, and to gain that trust and all that. Um, but the, the addiction was still there. And why most of our fights were because I felt like he wasn't really getting to the reason he had the addiction. He was kind of like pushing it to the, to the ground and being like, I don't really have this problem. 
I'm not drinking, so there's not a problem. But, I, but underlying, I felt like there were still issues of why were you drinking to excess? What emotionally is affecting your, your mental health that you feel like you need alcohol to cope? And so we definitely disagreed on his method of, of being sober because I didn't think that it was a true method, you know? So I have a question. Uh, I, w- I want to go back to when you said that you didn't feel like you could firmly say um, or draw a line, right? That you didn't feel like you could firmly say you're not going to do this anymore. Um, mm-hmm. I would love for you to unpack that just a little bit more because there's so many people that are listening that are, that don't know what to do. And, and you and I have even had conversations about what do you do and how do you know when to say this and how do you when, know when to say that? And, and I, one of the reasons why I encourage you to tell your story is because Alyssa has done a really um, good job and a very interesting job setting some very amazing boundaries along the way. And everybody has their own story and their own circumstances and, and their own consequences that are playing out in your relationship due to addiction. Um, but I'd love for you to unpack, Alyssa, why didn't you, you know, if you, if you weren't saying no more, right? No more. I'm not putting up with this anymore. I can't handle it anymore. And you said this, this had been going on for years. How Mm -hmm. did you not get to that point? Like, how did you have the strength to say, um, to have these, these consequences that you gave guardrails of consequences, but Mm -hmm. how did you not cross that line and just say, I can't do this anymore? Um, I think it, for me, it, and again, as you said, like, this is my story and I know other people do it differently. I've had friends tell me all the time, like, oh, I wouldn't have done that. I would have kicked him out or I would have just left him or whatever. Um, for me, I always looked at it as, um, I really dislike my husband drunk. My husband drunk is not someone that I would want to be married to, but I love my husband when he's sober and I want to be married to him. And we have a great relationship for the most part when he is not drinking. So I remembered that a disease does not make the man and he was a sick person. He had a sickness and I, you know, took a vow for in sickness and in health and I didn't want to leave him when he was sick. So I was trying to find a way to keep me safe, to keep the kids safe. And for all my husband's failings, he's not been, he's never been violent towards us. He's not, I've never felt unsafe in his presence. So I think that that also is different. I know there are some people when they suffer from alcoholism or addiction, they become unsafe to people around them. So my story may be different because I never felt unsafe. I always felt that he would may have been unsafe to himself, but the, everyone around him was perfectly safe and comfortable. So that is a huge, a huge part of it is that he may have been, you know, coping and doing things wrong, but he was pretty much only affecting himself when it came to his behaviors. Um, were they frustrating to those around him? Absolutely. But um, I never felt in danger, um, Did you think about that? Like, did you ever in those moments go, okay, I'm going to handle it this way because he's not putting the rest of us in danger. But if he does this, then this is what I'll do. So four years ago, I would have said yes, or five years ago, I would have said yes, because recently things have kind of escalated and changed. So um, that's, it's a little different of an answer. Thinking back into that, that timeframe where we were in that, in that first moment of knowing that he had a problem, I definitely was compartmentalizing the, the situation and saying, okay, well, if I can get him to the next place, get him to where he needs to be, then he'll relax. Can, um, my husband suffers from you know depression and anxiety, and when a transition happens, that's usually when he gets the most you know unstable because he 
likes to have, you know, things under control like most of us do. And knowing that, you know, the unknowns, I think, are what made him act out more because of, of those unknowns. So I think it was more, it wasn't necessarily always a conscious choice, except that I knew that I wanted to continually put my marriage first and be intentional with my marriage. And also know that I wanted my kids to have a father that was a functional, amazing person that I knew he could be. And in order to meet that goal, I needed to be supportive and understanding and give him that grace of like, this may be really hard right now, but it will be worth it in the future. And I think that's probably um, where a lot of my friends may look at me and be like, I don't know, I don't want to put up with all that. Um, It's just me being very intentional of like, I think that the end is worth this tornado in the middle. Okay. So you surprisingly (laughs) said that he was able to be sober for three to four years. Did he have support um, during those three to four years? I know he didn't, you said mostly it was grit. He did it on his own. No AA meetings, no, nothing, no therapy. Um, We, we, I was going to some therapy because I believe in therapy for every person under the sun for any reason whatsoever. So I was doing my work um, because I think that's important for me. Um, I was encouraging him to do some work for him. Um, he wasn't actually as open to that um, at the moment. I think he was still processing and he was in the middle of some schooling that was really vigorous. Um, so I think he was really focused on that. But I think that because he was so focused on, you know, get, doing well in that school, that allowed him to have a different focus. So he, and the other great thing about when you move and when you go to a different place is no one knew us as who we were. So we could go into a situation and say, we just don't drink that's just who we are. And it wasn't like a big deal because they're like, Oh, well they just don't drink. Um, whereas if we had stayed back where we were, people would be like, why are you not drinking? What's going on? Something matter? You know, it would have been a big, it would have been a big change. It would have been a big, you know, deal. Whereas when you move and that's just who people know you as, it was very easy to not feel a stigma surrounding it because that was just who we are. You know, we could have not drank because of our religion. We could have not drank because of other things, but it was never a topic because it was just who we were as a couple. And I'm sure this was very difficult for him, but like we never were, we always kept around people that were drinking. It was never like, oh, if you're around us, you can't be drinking. You can't have it. It was very much like, and I'm sure that was very difficult for him, you know, because even though I gave up alcohol, I don't miss it the same way he does. I don't have the addiction. So like I can give it up and be like, oh, I don't miss it. Where I'm sure he would see people having a beer or having something to drink and he'd be like, I want that. You know, so I think that I give him a lot of credit because he had to observe something that he wanted to do and couldn't do or, or made the choice that he shouldn't do. Um, so that I think was really difficult. Um, but in, in a way it was a good time for us to get out of, you know, the cycle that we were in in Colorado and have a new start somewhere else. So I'm sure that you had a lot of hope and a lot of um, things you're making progress at this point. And I'm sure that um, you were quite discouraged when he relapsed. Yeah, it was, and I, the, I guess the, the biggest part for me is that we had talked about um, the possibility of um, this transition time. So just to give everyone an understanding. So when we got this medical diagnosis about a year ago, um, we were expecting it to take about 12 months. And in the end, it took about six months. So it was a very a speedy process. The one time the Army decides to be speedy. Um, and we got word about August um, that we, where our ETS state was, what everything was looking like. Um, and for him, that was his, like, I need to figure out what we're doing next. I need to know where we're moving. I need to find a job. 
Um, I need to figure out who I am. You know, what, what, do I, what does it look like if I'm not wearing a uniform every day? And also grieve the loss of his dream to be a career service member. And that um, was a lot on him emotionally. And it was a lot on us as a couple. And um, originally we had planned that he was going to move before us and the kids and I were going to finish the school year out. I was teaching and I wanted to finish the school year. And we had a really great conversation right before the school year started where he kind of came to me and said, look, I don't like that plan. I don't think it will work. I need you guys to move with me because I don't want to fall into old habits and I don't want to start drinking again. And I think if I'm alone in a new place going through this whole transition, I don't want to do it alone. So I felt like super hopeful and super glad because we had this great conversation where he had came to me. He told me that he needed us around. So I begrudgingly, because I didn't want to leave my job, I didn't want to move the kids during a school year, um, said, okay, we'll go. Like, if that's what's best for your sobriety, we will go because that's important. That sobriety piece is important for our world. And so we made the choice when he got his new job that we would move when he got the job versus helping him move ahead of us. And the frustrating part was we hadn't even moved yet. He got the job offer. We had a date given and he relapsed maybe three weeks after the job offer um, and lied for a number of days before we moved, before we left. So he was on like his terminal leave where he wasn't going into work. And um, I was back at school and the kids were back at school. And there was a couple of days I would come home and I'd be like, what did you do today? You're okay. And I could sense that something was off and I would ask him point like right out, like, are you having trouble? Like, did you go out? Did you get something? And he'd deny it and say he was just stressed or worried or, you know, he has some other medical things going on that, oh, I just have, you know, this migraine or whatever, or I'm just feeling depressed. And so I, I, he was trying to play it off as something else. And I tried to believe him. Like, I really did. But, like, I knew in my heart that he was drinking. But I called him. And when he, you don't want to just, especially after four or five years, like, you don't want to just be like, well, you're lying, you know, because we had gotten such to a better place that I didn't want to, you know, spiral if we didn't have to. Um, and it wasn't until um, that the first weekend in September where it was Labor Day weekend and he drank all day and I knew it because he got to the point where he couldn't hide it. And um, it was, it was like a bad realization of like, what the heck is going on? And um, the, the base that we were at, um, we went, we ended up at an emergency room and cause he denied it the whole time. I'm not, I haven't been drinking. I didn't do any of that. And so I was like, well, if you're not drinking, you're not right in the head. So we need to go to the hospital because something's wrong in your brain that you're acting like this. That you legitimately. So I legitimately was like, okay, if you're not drinking, then we're going to go to the ER and figure out what's wrong with you. Because you like sarcastic about that. No, no. He was slurring his words. He was like, di- like, like going side to side. Like he wasn't functional, mm-hmm. but he was telling me he was stone cold sober. Well, fine. I don't believe you, but let's go to the ER. Then something's wrong with your brain. You're having some kind of stroke which I knew in my heart was not the case, but I got the kids to a friend's house and I took him to the ER and the military failed us that night to a degree that I will never, I think, recover from Um, because he was on an ETS status and because he had a retirement date coming up, they kind of treated us like, well, you're not our problem anymore, even though he was still active duty. Um, um, They did his, you know, blood alcohol contact. They did an IV. They did all that. But in the end, they basically discharged us. And on the discharge paperwork, it had the words, avoid alcohol. And that was it. And it's like, I'm, and I might have used some explicitives. And 
then like, of course, yeah, if I, of course, if only I knew to avoid alcohol, we wouldn't be here, you know, and it very much felt like they were putting me as this caregiver that I didn't feel like I needed to be because, you know, he's broken. I'm bringing him to you because you are a hospital. I want you to help us figure out how to get this situation better. What were you hoping that they would have done instead of just... I was hoping that they would have brought a social worker in with like rehab options, a detox center, like something that would have given him immediate, take him away from his family because he is not in a place to be around his children and figure out how to get him stable so that he doesn't continually make bad choices. That was what I was hoping. And let me ask this because you and I are both active duty and we're in this culture and it's kind of a bubble. I'm sure Mm -hmm. other people listening feel the same way. And I'm sure I'll get a response from nurses or those that work Mm -hmm. in the emergency room (laughs) and those that are um, physicians that would be glad to educate me on this, which I'm totally open to. Um, You know, I don't know. I wonder how much of it is, you know, going back to that emergency room, how much of it is we see soldiers come in every day intoxicated and they just need to go home and not do it again. Um, versus listening to what we would call that collateral person that's Mm -hmm. there with you to go, okay, no, this person is saying that this person has a problem and we have to go off of that collateral information and actually give them the resources and help that they need instead of treating it just like one night that went bad. Um, I know that when we were in Colorado, my neighbor who was not attached to our unit at all, just Mm -hmm. happened to be our our next door neighbor. Um, her husband came home and had a horrific drinking issue and it was every night, every night. And, and there were so many moments where she was trying to figure out what that, where that line was too. Mm -hmm. Um, and for her that she really hit her limit when one night he got up in the middle of the night, completely drunk and just urinated all over their children's books. Uh, and that was like, she just, I just can't do it anymore. But I remember her saying, I don't know where to go. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to tell anybody what the problem is because everybody drinks. Mm-hmm. Everybody drinks. So just stop drinking. Or when he goes back to work on Monday, he'll stop drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you wanted them to give you resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wonder, I wonder how much of this is, and I can see the other side of the health side. I can see them going, well, we can't prove there's no evidence that this mm-hmm. has been going on for months and months. And so, um, he's not a danger to himself or others. He's not saying he's going to hurt himself. So we can't do anything other than send them home. But I think what was really wounding for you was that you needed an advocate. Yeah. Or at least just not on the discharge paper, put the obvious. Like I knew he needed to avoid alcohol. Thanks for that. You know, like I just, it just wasn't, it just, it was almost like a knife of like, I already knew that that was the issue. So you don't need to write it on my discharge paperwork as like the instructions. If I can make him not avoid alcohol, I wouldn't be here. Cause I, but I can't control that. That's his choice. You know? And, um, it was, that was to me where I figured that, you know, our time as an active duty family, we were ready to, you know, kind of move on and figure out how to solve this in a different way. Um, with some different resources because we felt like, you know, um, and I don't know if this is true in all units, but even just as soon as he got, um, you know, the, the notice that he was being medically retired, his unit kind of even, you know, treated him like, well, if you're not here to help us anymore, we're peace out. Like, and almost treated him almost like they, you know, there was no retirement ceremony. There was no, you, you know, end of service award for him. There was none of that pomp and circumstance that we became so accustomed to at all the other stages of his career. 
but for whatever reason, you know, this medical retirement for a legitimate, you know, medical issue that, you know, his condition is not, was not service related necessarily. It was a, it's a heart condition that we didn't know he had. And so it wasn't anything that like we could have known or stopped or done differently. It was purely, they did a test. They found this condition. You can't serve in the military anymore. And I felt like they, people looked at it like he had done something, Mm. you know, like he served honorably his country for 12 years. Like there's no, there's, there should be no red, you know, there's, there's to be nothing, you know, to make, to think less of this person, you know? Um, But I think that in some units, the culture is very much like, well, you're not one of us anymore. So, you know, have a good life kind of thing. So painful. And that explains, I think, to a lot of people listening, what was triggering him, not just the transition of moving somewhere different and getting a new job and finding his identity, but also the trigger of that grief that you talked about and um, what a loss that really is to, Mm -hmm. it's one thing to transition out and go, where do I fit in? But Mm -hmm. to, to feel like you're forced out because now you supposedly don't fit in mm-hmm. is a whole other level of grief. Yeah, it definitely, it, it definitely, um, I think to this day, it probably still feels to him like he lost a part of himself. Um, so, so to fast forward, to continue on to, to the, the tornado that the, the six months ago was, is um, we went home, he remained, you know, trying to not drink for a number of weeks. Um, he came up to where his new job was, was drinking when he wasn't around me and was again, trying to keep hiding it. And it wasn't until we got here and it was closer to the holidays, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas timeframe that it got to the point where he couldn't hide it from me anymore. And, um, he went into a detox center. Cause I, again, I, we got to the point where I, I told our, our children are old enough now that they can see some things up. Um, they are, especially our oldest is very aware of situation things. And we, um, my husband, when he's a drinker, I think there are some alcoholics and some people who abuse alcohol that become, you know, loud and aggressive and, you know, they're very, you know, combative environments that that's not our case. That is not what we've experienced, but in, but at the same sense, you could tell he wasn't himself. And our children were noticing, oh, daddy's sick today, or daddy doesn't feel well, or whatever. And um, I had started a new job, so I was working full-time. He was waiting for some of his things to transfer over. So he was the one doing the role that I normally do with staying home and making them all ready for school. Um, And then kind of not coping well during the day when everyone was at school and I was at work. And it got to the point where I told him, I was like, we can't continue doing this. Something needs to change because it's becoming unsafe to our kids. I always worry. I'm worried when I'm at work, if you're drinking too much and when the kids get off the bus, are you going to remember they're getting off the bus? Are you going to be able to pick them up? Are you able to in an emergency, you know? So it got to the point where I felt my children were going to have some negative consequences from his behavior. And, um, in his sobriety moments, he understood that. And I think that's when he was like, I need to figure out where to get some support, some help. And we started researching, some outpatient facilities, some like day programs and things like that. And then he had a really awful weekend and um, ended up at an emergency room. And that's when the emergency workers there at the civilian hospital recommended a detox, like a full seven day in hospital detox. And I was like, please, like, please, if you think that would be helpful, like take him, like I will figure out home, but I need him to feel better. And so he did, um, those, those detox days and then went into an outpatient like day program. Um, 
and then went to an even, so he went down each step in his recovery and has been sober for the last six months. So I give him full credit because he did the work this time. The difference between, I feel like his relapse six months ago and when he first gave up alcohol, you know, four or five years ago was he did it a better way this time. He did it with the support of clinicians. He did it with the support of other people. Um, it was the first time, six months ago was the first time he actually called himself an alcoholic. Every other time he was always like, well, maybe in a couple of years, like I'll be able to have one or two drinks again, and maybe we can reintroduce alcohol into our, you know, our lives. And so I was very thankful because I never wanted to call him something he didn't identify as. So I was thankful when he said, no, this is a lifelong thing. I'm always going to be an alcoholic. I'm always going to be in recovery. And I, I appreciated that he's doing the work now. He's figuring out who he is, why he is using alcohol the way he is. And also, you know, how that affected, you know, him as a person before he even knew me. Um, and he's, you know, getting into some things from his past that I think is really helpful for him to move forward in his new life. Um, and, you know, in, in reality, we just, we can only be as good as our marriage as we are to ourselves. And I'm thankful that he's really taking some selfish time because he has to be selfish. In order for him to be sober right now, he has to be a little selfish. So again, I'm then being this, being the one that's like, okay, I'll just wait until you're ready, because um, which is a, real, a really hard place to be, because it's very hard to be the one that's kind of waiting for them to make the right choices. So let's talk for a second about what's different about you this time versus the first time. You know, a few minutes ago, I asked you about um, the boundaries that you were setting the first time, and you said that you know, fast forward to the current relapse and there's some things that you've had to be a lot more firm on. And so did, were you more firm this time or are, do you have a different set of consequences or a different set of a different perspective now on consequences and how the dynamics play out between the two of you than you did before? Well, our children are older. The first time our children were still very young. They weren't school age yet. They were still toddlers and babies. And now they all are school age. And I tell them all the time, like, our children see everything you're doing. And that, to me, is his biggest consequence, is when, he, when it affects our family. And I know my husband is a, a fabulous father. He loves his kids 110 times over. And he wants what's best for them. And he knows that when he's sober, he makes better choices for his kids. And so I give him a lot of credit because he does – and again, he compartmentalizes. I think a lot of people do this and a lot of men do that. And I see it a lot in service members too, where he can compartmentalize like work life, home life. And he, I think is realizing how maybe that's not as healthy um, to, to not acknowledge, you know, everything as a whole in, in your life as a whole. And I appreciate that um, we're still working through this. You know, I'm, I'm here talking today and, it, and I can't be like, oh, and now it's rainbows and butterflies. And there's, you know, we're, we're fabulous. I mean, my marriage is still... In limbo, I, I describe it to people as that six months ago, we had a tornado hit our family. I couldn't hold everything together. Destruction happened. And it, there's still destruction in our lives. And there, our pieces are not put back together. And it's still um, something that we're working for. And even though he's not drinking currently, we're still not 100%. And I think that that's something people need to realize and understand. If you have someone in your life that's working through an addiction or working through trouble, it's not something that like, oh, they stopped drinking and everything's better. Like that's not reality. And um, same with the transitioning out of the military. Like when he signed his DD-214, it wasn't like, oh, not in the military. Now you get to be someone else and you're okay with it. You know, like there's a whole process that has to happen. And um, 
you know, our marriage, we work on daily. We have days that we're, you know, like I said to a girlfriend last night, like, I just don't like him sometimes. I love him dearly. I just don't like him right now. And and when things happen and, um, and that's okay too. And we're working on that. And is addiction is one of those things that we're just always going to have, you know, as part of our story. And I want him to know that it doesn't define who I think he is. But as a society, sometimes people look at his addiction as a weakness and not as an illness. And I think that's where I've really had good insight of how to treat him. Because I don't want him to think I think he's weak. Because I know he's not a weak person. He's a sh- If anything, the fact that he can be as sober at the times that he is sober, he's the strongest person that I know. Because he can, he can put all those demons that he has in, aside and continue to make good choices. Where in the past, he's not made good choices. So... I think that's where the misconception in our society is because we want to talk all about how weak people are with addiction and not talk about the strength. Because the time of strength is way more important than the time that they've fallen. Next time on the Life Giver Podcast. It's very easy to think that like, oh, I messed up again. My wife's going to be mad at me. I'm done. This is worthless. It's very easy to feel that way. And I think we need to remind ourselves that that one moment should not and will really could not um unless you do other things it should not end your story it should like remember that there are people that need you that there are people in this world that want you around and that's what i keep telling my spouse when he's in his dark moments is that like you you're needed you're wanted you're loved um your mistakes don't define you and and that's what i need to hear that's what everyone needs to hear we all make mistakes we're all not perfect thanks for listening to the life giver podcast If you're enjoying these conversations as being free of advertising or sponsorship, please help me by spreading the word to other military and first responder families that might benefit from the show. If you'd like to find out more about me or LifeGiver, you can find more information at www.coryweathers.com or life-giver.org.